awful lot last semester in terms of trying to kind of take on Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, and so we wanted to just sort of come back to something that was a little bit more basic. Uh, With that said, I still really am interested in all of you thinking through what we want to do next summer. Um, What? No, that's too far. What we want to do next fall. All right? So what sermon series? What ideas do you have? What needs do we have? This is really kind of a a church-wide decision. Okay, It's not just like a few of us get into a room and decide, oh, that sounds interesting to me because that's what I'm studying. I need to hear. I've heard from none of you so far. Okay, now is the time. We should start planning and thinking about that. What ideas do you have about what uh, sermon series uh, we should do in the fall? Okay, there's a lot of options, a lot of things we could do. I need to hear from those of you who are involved in our church so that I can have some sense of where God may be leading us. Okay, so take that on. Spend some time thinking about that, even if it's five minutes in a car ride. What is it that we could do uh, this uh, this next semester? Okay, for uh, for our sermon series. Just me into my face. <laughs> yes, yes, right. I mean, if you want to email me, that's fine. Email. It goes in terms of me receiving information. It's my face, email, text, phone calls. Yeah. Probably nice to do all of them. Whatever. Um, I was just telling someone this morning that I have a tendency with voicemails to just read the transcript. And sometimes the transcript doesn't make much sense. Usually I can get the gist, gist of their message, but I very rarely actually listen to the voicemail, right? Like, who's got time for that? So I just, T9, read it, and, uh, you know, I don't know, it says some really crazy, some of you have said some really offensive things to me <laughs> that I'm uh, holding against you, you know? So, anyway, that's okay. So, that's how you do it. All right, so we're going to uh, finish up. Uh, we have three weeks left, uh, two weeks after today on this series, and we've saved the most intense for last. Uh, today is Is God an Angry God, part one. And then next week will be Is God an Angry God, part two. And then on the 21st, where a lot of you will be gone because that's move out Sunday, and so a lot of you will be helping folk move in Sunday. We'll be helping uh, college students at UNT and TWU move in. Uh, unfortunately, you'll just have to listen to the audio if that's one of the ones you want to listen to. But we'll also do a specialty small group on that sermon topic, which is God among other gods. And the idea there is to compare God and how he's presented in the Bible to how God or gods are presented in some of the other major world religions. Okay? So we've got a lot to do in three weeks. And obviously, although today will be somewhat academic, my goal is not so much to teach you a lot of things, because we don't have a lot of time, you know, 20, 30 minutes, Uh, but to more just get you to think so that you can go and do some of your own study, your own thinking on these topics. Okay? Certainly there's no way we're going to be able to cover some of what people have been reading and writing about and talking about for a long time All right, in just these three weeks. But uh, remember the goal of our sermon series is to get you spending intentional time with God. It's not in the form of some just quiet time or devotional, but something that where you're, you're being able to connect things that are going on in your life uh, to what God's doing and his movement and being able to really experience God. So many of us, we know a lot about God. We've been taught a lot about God. But what we've been trying to focus on this summer is really experiencing the character of God. You guys have all heard that saying, right? Uh, you know, character is caught, not taught. It's no different in our relationship with God. You can learn all you want about who God is, but until you experience those attributes in your life, his character, you will not be changed. Nor will you really catch on to who God is. And far too many Christians in America 
and perhaps elsewhere, but let's just focus on our country for a moment, are Christians that have been taught a lot about God's qualities, but never really experienced His character. And the role uh, or the goal of a disciple, someone who's really following after God, is experiencing the character of God in our lives. In ways that are maybe difficult, but that we can really put an experience, a, a, um, a time of life, a moment, a choice, in, in understanding how God acts. Not just something that sort of stays in our head. So my goal in talking about this whole idea of God being angry is not at all to defend God. I don't need to defend God. God will defend himself. You'll have to decide that on your own. And that's not what my goal is today at all. But my goal is to simply use this this, uh, issue of God being violent and being mean uh, as an opportunity for you to learn and understand God's character. One more opportunity for you to go back and do. Okay, My goal, again, is not to teach you these things, but to encourage you to go research these things on your own. Okay, Write this down. Because here's what we're going to be doing next week. This week I'm going to give you some sort of basic guidelines for reading through some of the more troubled texts in the Old Testament. All right? And then we're going to take, off, we're going to take one, and I'm going to kind of show you how to think through this. Uh, or at least offer some ideas on how to think through this. But then next week, all we're going to do is take the four most troubling passages in the Old Testament and talk about them. We might even do groups. We might do who knows what. I haven't completely planned it yet. I'm never planning a week ahead of time. It's way too early to start planning something. Okay? So these four verses, Joshua 8, 1 through 25. I'd recommend you pick one of these and you go just think about it, study it a little bit, read it. Um, Contrary to popular belief, God doesn't go around killing women and children sort of at will. In fact... In my study of about 35 passages, these are the only four passages where I can find that it's uh, explicitly mentioned uh, that God seems to either be condoning or encouraging or at least allowing the slaughter of women and children. Okay? And so those are the four passages we're going to take next week. uh, Joshua 8, 1 through 25. 2 Samuel 24. Deuteronomy 3, 6. In 1 Samuel 15. Now, if you want to throw in another one that's just sort of like an odd story, there are a lot of odd stories, okay? But so many of the odd stories are related to times of war and miraculous things happening in times of war. Um, So we won't address that too much. You need me to read those again? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Joshua 8, 1 through 25. 2 Samuel 24. I probably should have put them up here, but didn't think about it. Deuteronomy 3.6, and I'm sure there's more to that. I don't know why I just put one verse reference. eh? (laughs) 1 Samuel 15, well, I put 1 through 3, but again, I'm sure you have to actually contextualize some of these. All right? Everyone got them? Those four? Just pick one. I wouldn't go through all four, man, unless you just have, like, a lot of time. Um, And then, just kind of a weird story that I think we're all familiar with that seems comical, but not so much when you read it. Uh, is 2 Kings 2.23, where like, uh, I think it's Elijah, Elijah, or Elijah, or a, comb- a combination. Elijah. You know, calls down the bears on the kids, right? We're all like, 42 kids died because they called him a bald head dude? Like, <laughs> dude's messed up. Um, so, uh, we probably won't talk about that one, but if you want to reference that one too, I'm going to technically say that also seems to be a passage where um, the killing of children is condoned. Okay. 
So those are the five passages that I have. The four that we'll focus on are those first four uh, next week. Any questions about that? Read those, think through them, study them if you want to. The best way I know to, to tackle this issue is just by taking these scriptures head on. I'm not going to you know, reference them in vague terms. We're just going to take them head on and deal with them and talk about them. Okay, so let me just give you sort of a, a quick outline. And this is going to be a little bit teachy, and I'm sorry, but you'll want to write, write some things down. And this will help you read the Old Testament, I think. Uh, not just these troubled passages, but I think will help you just in general read some of the Old Testament. Uh, which, as a church, uh, we really are a big fan of. I mean, we want you to understand the Old Testament. Because it's not really possible for you to understand and appreciate a lot of the stuff in the New Testament without a real firm understanding of God in the Old Testament. Not to mention the fact that we have a tendency to think of God as somehow changing from Old Testament to New Testament. And that's no good. Or maybe worse, favoring Jesus over God. I mean, which won't work for a Christian in terms of your theology. I mean, it just can't work that way. Um, we can't substitute one for the other. So, these are just a few kind of guidelines and thoughts related to this, uh, these troubled passages in the Old Testament. Number one, you're going to find when you read these passages, um, these four, but even if you were to read the other like 17 or 18 that have to do with people dying and being killed as a result of uh, war times, you're going to see this phrase, utterly destroyed, all the time. I mean, it's just there all the time. This is actually a technical term in Hebrew. The word is cherim, all right? And it just means something being wholly devoted to God. Sometimes it means destroy. Sometimes it doesn't. Now, this is not just a sort of a, a preacher semantical game here where I'm saying, oh, you know, the word doesn't mean what we, we think it means. This is easily proven, guys. When you'll read a text that will say, and the people of Ai were utterly destroyed. And then literally, the next paragraph talks about the people of I doing things. You know? You're like, what happened? God just kill the entire people group and then resurrect them? No, I don't think so. It means that these people were wholly devoted for destruction, whatever that technical term means in Hebrew. And yet, that didn't mean that they were physically destroyed, the entire people group. And that's important, okay? This was sort of like a war language they used. A way of exaggerating, saying that God has overtaken this people. And they used it a lot in their uh, conversations about God. And so one of the things first that we have to figure out when we take some of these passages on is what are those times when people seem to have been physically destroyed and times they were just sort of given over to God, whatever that possibly means. All right? And that we're going to have to do uh, that with some of these passages. Because I'm not saying that all those passages can be explained away by the word cherub. They can't. Some of them seem to be talking about whole people uh, and cities being destroyed. Okay? So, uh, cherub, holy war, exaggerated, uh, but a lot of these people are still alive. The second issue, and these are just two specific issues. Have any of you ever gone on like Wikipedia and tried to figure out how many people died in a war? That's pretty terrible and you know, kind of weird. But you never just you never thought about it. Whenever I'm watching, my dad loved to watch war shows growing up. You know, all about World War II and Civil War. And one of the things I would always do when I heard about wars is I would go to see how many people died in that war. Because I wanted to see like how big of a deal it was. I mean, all war is a big deal. But it's amazing to me the numbers and the differences, right? I mean, sometimes wars are just like small amount of people. And then you look at the world wars and you're like, oh my gosh, this we're, you know, we're talking about in the hundreds of millions of people dying, right? Well, if we, in our modern day and age, can't exactly figure out accurate estimates, because there are a lot of estimates, and these range in the tens of millions, 
then I doubt many of the Hebrews really had a very firm idea of how many people were dying at any given time or dead. I don't think they were going around manually counting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. So one of the things that's really important when you're reading the Hebrew, and again, this sounds a little bit like a defense or a explain these things away. That's not my goal. My goal is just to tell you sort of how it is. A lot of the number estimates are symbolic and meaningful. They have some meaning associated with them. And you ever notice how a lot of them are whole numbers? It's like God was just like, all right, let's stop at 3,000. That makes it pretty convenient. 3,001, you know, I don't know about that. It's going to be too many. No, come on. This, this, these are estimates that a lot of times people are giving based on a number of different factors. Sometimes symbolic, sometimes it's their best guess, who knows. But we do have to know that a lot of numbers in the Old Testament, uh, even in our own day and age, uh, are ultimately estimates. Sometimes those estimates can be far off, meaning that they're under the amount of people who've actually died. And sometimes it, it could be over. I'm not saying one or the other. I'm just simply telling you uh, that there are a lot of times that these, these numbers are estimates. Okay, moving on from there. So there's sort of like five teaching points here, okay? First one, you've got to know these specific issues, this holy war word, number estimates. The second one is a lot of these stories of people being overthrown or people dying take on in the Hebrew a very specific format that almost reads like uh, watching a court scene take place. You've got the people, they've been accused of this, you've got the defendant, you've got the judge looking at past evidence, and then you're having making some kind of assessment or judge, judgment on the people, and then sentencing them to a crime, I mean to a punishment. Almost all of the times we read about these um, slaughtering, these, these uh, you know, incidents that, that, we, that seem pretty unfavorable to us, they basically play out like a scene from a court show, which suggests that God is not just flippantly deciding and impulsively that some people have to go, but rather making very specific assessments of crime and doling out those punishments in accordance with the crimes that have been committed. And in fact, when you read a lot of these uh, uh, testimonies, particularly the one that we'll read today, what's clear more than anything is this judge has allowed these people to do the same crime over and over and over again and finally decided, no, not again. And he lists the evidence of what these people have done. And, and it's, it's really important, I think, to read through some of these stories from that perspective. The law court perspective is God making a judgment based on the evidence before him. And what's also interesting is that he allows a defendant, a defense uh, lawyer, rather. Moses plays that role. A number of key people in the scripture play the role of the defense lawyer. They say, okay, fine, 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 but... And then take on uh, the defense of the people. And God listens. Sometimes even seems to change his mind, which is a whole other issue that we're not so comfortable with in our theology, which, uh, again, we'll address when we read the story today. So... When we read some of these passages from the idea of uh, a judge, particularly a loving judge, but that might be too far for some of us who are still a little bit skeptical of these, these stories, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. Number two, in, in terms of this law court thing, one of the things that's really important that you not say as a Christian is that God can do whatever he wants to do in regard to these uh, killings and these judgments. Theoretically, you're correct. 
God has full authority to do what he wants to do. His scope of authority is infinite. The problem is, if God can truly do whatever he wants to do, then he's not a just God. A just God has predictability to him. He makes good decisions. He makes decisions that we can see as good. If he just chooses impulsively to do whatever he wants to do when he feels like doing it, then there's no way God could be a good God. Sometimes Christians miss over this point. Certainly God has a full scope of authority, but he chooses to use it in a specific way, and it's his use of authority that makes God a just God. God can't just decide, I mean, he he can decide, but won't just decide to flippantly dole out justice. Again, if he does, then he's not a good God. And that's really important to know. The difference between his scope of authority, meaning the full amount of it, and how he uses that authority. If we can't find a predictable pattern to God's use of authority, then he really isn't a good God. Because he's like the impulsive person who just goes out and treats people flippantly, and we we can't trust it, we don't know if it's good, there doesn't seem to be any standard that he's upholding. He's just sort of doing whatever he wants to do. And none of us would call someone who does that a good person. It's the same standard for God. Now, God set up that standard for himself. But that's an incredibly important point. And too many well-meaning Christians have made the statement, well, what's good is whatever God does. No. God himself didn't say that, nor would ever live by that standard. No one could be good according to that standard. And if you need more on that, sort of theoretically and, and whatever, just come talk to me. We, we can address that together. Okay? So, God in a law court. Think about if we had a judge who just sort of like allowed white people to pretty much get away with crimes and then penalized black people more harshly, which we do have in our society <laughs> um, with some consistency. But imagine that for a moment. There's no way we would call that judge a good judge. He certainly has the authority to do that, but if he's deciding on a whim, he's not a good judge. And so we have to use that same ideology here, I think, when we're looking through these passages. And I think God is himself wanting us to see that, wanting us to see how fair and non-prejudicial he is as a judge. In fact, when we go back through most of these, these people who have died and been punished for their crimes, it's the Israelites. More often than not, they're the ones treated at this higher standard than the people around them. And if we lose and miss that, then we'll miss a light of, of what's going on here. Um, okay. So, I don't know if I want to talk about that. Uh, am I losing you guys? Is this a little too teachy? You know, sure. Some of you are like falling asleep now. No, I'm fine. That's, that's the great stuff. Needed this nap. Uh, Yeah, I forgot that. (laughs) Okay, so um, there have been a lot of interpretations throughout the years uh, and in these troubling passages. The early church fathers just refused to believe that God did any of this stuff. Uh, They really did a a terrible job when it comes to dealing with some of these passages. Uh, They inherited this idea from the Greeks that the Greeks were using at the time. Uh, where you needed to interpret passages, religious passages, in a way that was worthy of, of God. So a lot of the Greeks had interpreted a lot of the philosophy that had come up to that point as, you know, these are, these are things that are just figurative, imaginative. None of the gods are actually doing this stuff. I mean, because if you read Greek mythology, it's just like 
painful. I mean, it's like a soap opera, right? And if you're interpreting all these events as them actually happening rather than being symbolic of, you know, things, then you will pretty quickly get bored of Greek mythology, or at least I did. I don't know, some of you might like, you know, ancient soap operas, but I wasn't a big fan. So, the early church fathers, having had that Hellenistic influence and Greek influence, began interpreting the scripture the same way. They would just take passages that were unfavorable and say, you know, that's not worthy of God, so we'll just sort of like see this as symbolic. And they just did a real injustice, I think, uh, to our understanding of, of the Old Testament, particularly some of these difficult passages. But some of you really read the scripture like that. You either ignore those points... Or you just assume that, well, you know, uh, it's probably didn't happen like that. It's probably just like, you know, symbols and imagery and, and certainly. And one of the things that we won't talk about today is the flood, because the flood is itself a whole different issue than some of these actual stories that we have of things going on. Um, but we often read into a lot of these passages our own current worldview and what's going on. The biggest problem with the idea that we have to read the scripture in a way that's worthy of God is what's worthy of God changes from time to time. For the Greeks, what was worthy of God was an honorable God. Someone who's honorable. Most of us don't even use that term anymore. For us, I would say if we were to come up with one definition of a good God, it's someone who's inclusive and fair. I didn't care about any of that. Greeks weren't inclusive and fair. Are you kidding me? No way. So what's worthy of God changes. And so so much of our reading of of the Old Testament of God doing things has to do with our own prejudgment, our own value system, trying to figure out does God live up to this value system that I have? And I think as as that's an okay starting place, we've got to remember God is the God who told Moses, I am who I am. You can take it or leave it. He is who he is and he has a certain character that sometimes you're going to have to accept whether you like it and whether it fits in your current understanding of what's right, wrong, moral or not. Now that's not to say that with extreme situations we can just sort of say, oh, well, you know, that was a different time and place and use that whole escape route. But we do have to know that we're reading into a lot of God's activities and characters here with the real, the best way to say this isn't a wrong way of looking at morality, but an emphasis. An emphasis that strongly favors one way of looking at morality and not another. Yeah? We like individualism. And if people aren't being treated for their individual crime, they're being punished in groups. Not a good thing. Whereas it would be the opposite for other cultures who even exist uh, today. Um, and we could go on and on there, and I won't uh, belabor this, this point. Okay? So, uh, I'm, not, I'm just going to skip through this point. Just remember, Israel had a specific relationship with God, right? Okay, cool. See ya. That's point three. Point four, uh, Hebrew narrative, right? Many of you who've studied through some of, of our taking school and ministry class or understood uh, some of Hebrew narrative, you, you understand that Hebrew narrative can be a little bit uh, descriptive, to use a, a academic term, uh, meaning they just sort of describe what's happening and don't make much commentary on whether it's good or bad. Uh, I'm going to make a, a side comment, and that is that if you really want to dig into this, this is something that you're particularly interested in, you need to go and find some really good atheist sites on uh, God's violence in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, dwindling unbelief is a good one. Rethinking the Bible is a good one. There are a number of sources where atheists get together. They even have an annotated Bible, which is a Bible that they think is more true to the nature of uh, what's being talked about and said. And in fact, <laughs> there's one post on re- uh, dwindling unbelief that has an estimate of all the people that God has killed. There's like 40 examples 
and they actually come up with all the estimates and numbers and stuff. I mean, it's very thorough in that sense. But this is a good resource uh, simply because um, a lot of times they're going to present information that really kind of counters a lot of your assumptions about, uh, about what's going on. And I think that can be very, very helpful. But one of the big mistakes that a lot of those sites make is they interpret because something is talked about in Scripture, it's immediately condoned by God. But that's just not how Hebrew narrative worked. Hebrew narrative would just explain things, okay? And, you know, the whole bear story, I think that's the easiest way to explain what happened there. Elijah was not a good dude. <laughs> a bad dude. Okay, he called bears down because someone said he was bald. What a terrible person. <laughs> All right? Well, we don't think God works through perfect people and that's all he can work through? I mean, God works through murderers throughout the scripture, which is a very uncomfortable thing to say in our day and age, and I understand why. But he just does. And maybe that was more okay back then, I don't know, but God has the ability to work through some really terrible people. But that does not at all mean that he's condoning this awful, awful thing that's going on. All right? And so it's really important to know that Hebrew narrative often just tells us the story, but doesn't really give us any recommendations or make any commentary. And too many Christians, well-meaning Christians, have often taken things that have been done in the Scripture, like Gideon and his fleece and that whole story, and said, oh, this is how we should interact with God. When the Scripture is clearly not condoning this behavior, and in fact, if anything, it's suggesting this is a bad idea. You know, not a good idea. Don't do this. Bad, bad, bad. Okay. Finally here, my final fifth point. Yes. I think the focus that a lot of atheistic websites have on God's character is the right focus. I think we should be on the same playing field as them when it comes to trying to understand what these passages say about God's character. And I appreciate a lot of these sources going back to and talking about God's character because that is really at issue. Is God a good God? Can we, from these passages, come to the conclusion that the God that we serve is not some evil, flippant, impulsive God? But is he's really a good God. And too many of us are uncomfortable making this assessment. We're just uncomfortable with it. Oh, maybe we're uncomfortable because it doesn't really fit into our ideas about God. Maybe we're com- uncomfortable because it seems like we're afraid we're going to find out something that we don't want to know. But how many of us do that in our friendships with people? You don't talk about something that you're wondering just because you're afraid to find out. I mean, I know we do it often. But I don't think that's a very sign of a very intimate or good relationship. That you can't deal with that. And I don't think uh, you know, God would have us do that with, uh, with some of these passages. But God's character is the approach here, okay? I'm not going to talk about that one. Okay, Exodus 32. So let's, uh, let's, let's practice this a little bit. Let's read through Exodus. Exodus 32 is one of the first um, kind of major killings that takes place, okay? Exodus 32. And we know the beginning of this story, and we know the end of it, but as it plays out, we often have a convenient uh, memory lapse when it comes to the middle of this story, okay? The beginning of the story is the golden calf, yeah? People are like, where is God? Where, and, and what's happening with Moses? Has he left us? Who knows how much time has elapsed, but they're starting to think, uh-oh, we're scared, we're frightened, Many of us look at them and think, man, they're a bunch of idolatrous people. Well, number one, they didn't think the calf was actually God. Okay? I think that's a little bit of a, uh, maybe an ignorant view of what's going on here. More likely, what they're doing is they need to feel the presence of God, and so they make a representation 
that something tangible that will allow them to see God and, and feel close to Him. They're, they're, they're worried. We do this all the time in our daily life. We don't feel the presence of God. We don't have a sense of His presence. And so we, we kind of like, you know, uh, uh, represent His presence in certain things that we're doing. Certain things that we've condoned because, well, God certainly wants that for us. That's all the people are doing. They're not worshiping the calf as God. That, come on. That, that, that's like you know, saying Hindus who worship thousands of gods because they go to these various temples. No, they have an understanding of a one God. These are all just representations of that very same God. So, out comes the calf. And one of the best, most humorous lines in all the scripture, right, is when Aaron... I, it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. I really, it's my favorite. Biblical humor, right? Moses comes back. He says, Aaron, what have you been doing? And Aaron's like, uh, 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 these people, they threw in their gold into that pit, and out came a calf. <laughs> like at first, he, he very much talks about fashioning it, uh, you know, but then all of a sudden forgets that he fashioned it, and now all of a sudden the calf just sort of popped out of the pit. I mean, just in the funniest, like, excuse ever given. You know, Moses doesn't even respond to them. him. It's so stupid. Um, and then, of course, at the end of the story, we actually have Moses having God's presence sweep by him in the cleft of the rock. And this really intimate moment where Moses has seemed to flip completely from this guy that didn't want to have to go rescue the people to now is like sending, saying, I will sacrifice myself for these people. I mean, what a turnaround. What a crazy. T- and, and where did that come from? You think Moses just got influenced by the goodness of the people of Israel? Are you kidding me? No, that came directly from his intimacy with God. That sense of sacrifice, that desire to want to sacrifice for his people. Paul does the same thing in Romans for all the people of Israel. Constantly you see throughout the scripture, after being around God, what do the people of God want to do? They want to sacrifice themselves for the people. They want to put themselves in that position. And that's only, of course, leading up to this idea of Christ um, but that's what happens as a result of being around God, is that these people become incredibly sacrificial. One of the points, I think, of the story, uh, really, when it comes to uh, understanding here. So, uh, you know, the story, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just kind of summarize it because it's kind of long and whatever. So, um, you know, the people do the calf. Moses pleads for them. God's ready to wipe them out. Whatever that means exactly, does he mean like back to the flood? Because, I mean... He already said he was never going to do that again. That's why we have rainbows, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, what, what was he talking about? Who knows? But then Moses seems to have to, like, defend the people, right? And we have this weird moment in Scripture where it seems like God changes his mind or, like, is impulsive. Guys, what's really important about reading back through these stories is as much as we see really important character traits of God, we often see in our own understanding of God some really like less than good quality traits. You read through this passage, you're going to see God is impulsive, exaggerative. You know, he changes his mind. He seems to be very severe and punitive. Maybe gives up on people easily. If you read this story out of the context of this entire passage of what's going on, it would be very, very easy to interpret God's behavior that way. And so that's why so much of reading these passages have to do with this sort of consistent testimony and how much of it is us just reading piecemeal and reading in our own you know, understanding into what's going on here. 
Um, I'll say one of the real uh, neat things about this passage is the early church fathers had a tendency, and I'm talking bad about them, the early church fathers had just as many good stuff to say, just like our scholars today, guys. Just as much good as bad in my mind to do a stupid 50-50 thing. Um, but another one of the things that they really taught us that was incorrect was that God was sort of impassive. He was sort of this, you know, uh, Islamic God that, that really wasn't personal, didn't have really strong, you know, kind of attributes, that just sort of sat up there and let the world roll. This is not how the Hebrews are presenting God here. They're presenting Him as actually conversing early on with Moses to figure out this situation. This is a God that's deeply active and involved in the Israelites' affairs. That allows people to sort of, allows people to, to defend their case to Him. A judge that's fair and willing to listen. You see the same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah. Over and over and over again. So he works with people and he works with them early on. He's, he's a concerned God. He's a God that, that takes sin and takes punishment, particularly when it's going to affect the whole group, very seriously. And nips it at the bud really quickly and early on. He gathered the Levites to himself. And he said, I want you to go and kill your friends, your family, and your sons who were involved in this deal. And so 3,000 people were struck that day and killed and, and again, the Hebrew narrative doesn't go into why those 3,000. I mean, we can sort of guess that they were the main ones involved in this situation. But we don't have the benefit of understanding what exactly, uh, you know, let these 3,000 take the fault for that day. We have no idea. The passage leaves us totally guessing on why. And it seems a harsh punishment, and it seems very challenging, unless you read this whole process that's taken place from the Exodus into this time, where the people are constantly, constantly, constantly leading uh, you know, the rest of Israel away from a trust in God, and trying to take it back to an understanding of uh, who they are. Another thing that I think would, uh, that, that's kind of important here is to recognize that the sacrificial system hadn't really been set up yet you get this sort of first sense of the importance of a sacrificial system. And by sacrificial system, what we're ultimately talking about here is that the people need to recognize that their sins have consequences. Someone's going to have to sacrifice for what they've done. Not in the sense of like ritual sacrifice. I mean an actual sacrifice. Someone's going to be deeply affected by their sin. Someone's going to, to have blood spilled as a result of them turning away from God. Sin has consequences, and it hurts people, and it harms people, and it does things that we can't even possibly understand down the line, as you know, God talks about here in this passage of sin, you know, visiting children for generation to generation. And God was unwilling uh, for that to happen. One of the main themes of violence in the Scripture, when you read back through it, is not allowing the Israelites to be influenced negatively uh, by other worldviews. But guys, that's not a, a, an isolationism or an inclusivism, an exclusivism. Because remember the whole point. In fact, God here in this passage says to Moses, I'll wipe these people out, but I'm still going to make a great nation out of you. And that whole idea of a great nation, if you go back to Abram, is what? A great nation, what's the end goal of the great nation? Bless the, world. Bless the nations. That's it. And so God is continually thinking through if we're going to really have an impact on the nations around us, we can't allow the distinctive character of who I am and what my people are doing to be, in, uh, to be watered down like that. We just can't. Israel has to become a people who truly bears my name. <clears throat> so he's persistent in that sense, and you see that over and over and over again. 
Um, I want to read through Ezekiel 33 just to close. And we'll lead into our communion time here. I think when you, when you read through these passages, you really have to try to kind of dig in and understand what's going on. If you try to make really quick snap judgments, uh, it's not going to make much sense and it's not going to be uh, you know, very enlightening to you. But I think if you go through and try to understand what's happening, try to put yourself in the position of the various characters, I say even including God in these passages, um, then you'll, I think, come to understand exactly what's at stake in a lot of these situations. Uh, and how to really understand, okay, what is this passage really explaining about who God is? One of the weirdest things of, sometimes about our interpretation of a lot of these passages is the writers themselves who live through and are recounting these events don't have any problem calling God good. In fact, these stories seem to highlight and articulate for them God's goodness. And yet when we go back and read them, they're the very passages that we struggle through. Which again says a lot about our understanding of the world today. And that's not, that's not a problem. That's okay, I think. But we definitely have to remember, uh, you know, when we're looking at these original authors and what they're saying about God, um, they're certainly trying to emphasize some of the important character traits of who he is and what he's willing to do for us. And, uh, and then, you know, we've had to kind of make our own decisions there and whether that uh, plays into our experience or doesn't. Seems to run counter to it. Ezekiel 33, I just wanted to end with this passage and lead us into a time of communion. Ezekiel 33, starting in verse 10. Now you mortal, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, our transgressions and our sins weigh upon us, and we waste away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you mortal, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not save them when they transgress. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, it shall not make them stumble when they turn from their wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by their righteousness when they sin. Though I say to the righteous that they shall surely live, yet if they trust in their righteousness and commit iniquity, none of their righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in the iniquity that they have committed, they shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if they turn from their sin and do what is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, give back what they have taken by robbery, and walk in the statutes of life, committing no iniquity, they shall surely live, and they shall shall not die. None of the sins that they have committed shall be remembered against them. They have done what is lawful and right, they shall surely live. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just. When it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turn from their righteousness and commit iniquity, they shall die for it. And when the wicked turn from their wickedness and do what is lawful and right, they shall live by it. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I would judge all of you according to your ways. God really is a God that's merciful. Letting no sins or no past righteousness count for the future. But allows continually for us to live in His grace. Ready to restore us back if we're willing to. And I think that's the story of Exodus 32. Is that God is constantly there working to restore His people. Infinite amount of times ready to restore whatever it takes. And that's the God that we serve. Lord God, thank you so much. Uh, Just for in my own life. um, Oh man, I just have a long list of things that... uh, uh, 
that you have forgiven and that you have worked in and things that you're still working out. Bad decisions, bad choices, um, impulses. I just thank you for being a merciful God. For being a God that's ready to restore us. That takes serious our sin, um, but not so serious that you can't accept us back. We just thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus giving the ultimate sacrifice to show that you're willing to take on the pain and endure um, the trouble that sin causes on yourself, even though you don't deserve even a moment of that. We love you, Lord, and we take this in your name. Amen. Those of you who are new, the way we take communion is we uh, go to the back, we take some of the bread that uh, Grant made and dip it into the juice, and then you can uh, take it. We, we, we think of this as more of a family meal, so if you want to be somber and kind of quiet and thoughtful, please do, but generally the rest of us uh, are a little ruckus, so I'm sorry about that. Um, you have my blessing. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.